This episode of New Politics was released on the 4th of November, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, Australia fails to back a UN resolution for a ceasefire and humanitarian truce in Gaza, the cracking story of media balance and bias, and what are the chances of a minority government at the next federal election? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, principal dancer with the Australian Ballet Company. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There was a vote at the United Nations during the week calling for a ceasefire and humanitarian truce in Gaza and 120 countries voted in favour of the resolution, 14 countries voted against and it's hard to imagine any country voting against a ceasefire but that's exactly what the United States has done and the other 13 countries have either got favours that they have to pay back to the United States In the case of Croatia, this is a thank you vote for when the United States pushed for their independence all the way back in 1991, or the other countries who want to get more favourable arrangements with the United States in the future. So that's a comprehensive vote in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza, but there were also 45 countries that abstained from voting at all, and one of those countries was Australia, and the claim was that Australia wouldn't vote for the resolution because it didn't condemn the actions of Hamas. But essentially, an abstention at the United Nations means that you don't want to offend any of the permanent members, and in this case, it would be the United States. So Australia decided that it wanted to be a bystander and let the destruction of Gaza keep going. And the United Nations resolution was non-binding and in the processes of international law, even if it was a binding resolution, there's not much that could be done with it anyway. But it's still an opportunity to let the world know where a country stands on this type of issue and Australia decided to abstain and France voted in favour, New Zealand voted in favour, Norway, Slovenia, so many other European countries voted in favour of this resolution so it's not like it was the third world ganging up on Israel but it's a clear and obvious resolution to stop the destruction of the Gaza Strip and Australia decided not to support it. It was a very disappointing move from Australia to basically turn a blind eye in the the nicest interpretation or in the most positive interpretation, turning a blind eye to genocide. And it is a genocide that's happening. That's clear. The Israeli government, and I want to make it very clear that it is the corrupt Netanyahu government that is behind all this. It's not a will of the Israeli people in any substantial way. The Australian government, of course, has to balance its own citizens. Many uh, Australian citizens were born overseas or came over, their parents came over in the first generation. According to the last census, about 0.4% of the population is uh, Jewish and about 3.5% is Islamic. I haven't broken down 
the numbers of Islamic people from the Middle East and the number of Islamic people from other areas of the world, remembering too that Indonesia is the biggest Muslim country in the world. But nonetheless, those are people who in Australia, we need to look after both sides because they're Australian citizens or they're permanent residents or they're living under some kind of protection in Australia. We don't want to see anti-Jewish action. We don't want to see anti-Muslim action in Australia. Calling for a ceasefire, I don't think, would have changed anything substantially in Australia. It would have showed our citizens that we care about the people who live here and that we actually do care that children and refugees are looked after after years and years of that not really being the case. So I found it very disappointing that they wimped out and abstained. Abstention looked weak. It looked indecisive. It didn't look great. How are we to now go and deal with other countries who desperately want a ceasefire? How are we to deal with countries like Lebanon, who Australia has a very close connection to, mainly through immigration to here, but nonetheless, I thought it a short-sighted, mean-spirited mistake from a, a foreign affairs department that should be one of the best in the world and from someone who we really had come to expect a lot more from, including the Prime Minister and the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Now, a non-binding resolution might not seem like much, but it does lay the groundwork for further lobbying and action. And and that might seem like an insufficient solution when you've got a war going on right now. But you do have to remember that there's 193 members of the United Nations and there's a wide range of geopolitical interests that do need to be taken into account. And the issue is that further lobbying and action could be a wide range of issues or it could be a UN peacekeeping force or an establishing a UN protectorate. But that is so far away from happening. And it's something that probably would need to be promoted and supported by the United States as well. But that's the purpose behind this United Nations resolution, but also to cease the targeting against civilians in the Gaza Strip to stop that right now. And the abstention, I think, for Australia, it shows the quandary that Australia is in internationally. And because of AUKUS and other security arrangements, and also the history of Australia siding with the United States going back to 1966 with the all the way with LBJ rhetoric from Harold Holt at the time. And I'm sure that Penny Wong would have wanted to vote in favour of the resolution, but we can only judge foreign ministers by their actions, not what we think they might do. And there have also been some suggestions that an abstention in itself is an independent decision made by Australia. But when you look at the background commentary and the statements that Australian envoys made at the United Nations, it wasn't really much of an independent decision. It's probably the weakest decision Australia could have made. And I think there is also some irony in this because Australia was a key instigator of the creation of the United Nations back in 1945. Herb Everett, John Curtin, Francis Ford, they were all instrumental in the creation of the United Nations. And the idea at that time was that the smaller countries all around the world would have a say in international affairs. But that was 1945. And in 2023, it's a different picture. Australia is still a relatively small country, but it just doesn't have much of an independent say in the big world issues. Everett was the first president of the United Nations. It was a real coup for Australia in many ways, although a few commentators felt that it was a mistake for Everett to 
go for such a big position that they might have been more effective having him in a position where he could wield a bit more influence rather than having to chair every committee. Of course, Everett was one of the great legal minds till he caught some form of dementia. And Everett's one of the great tragedies of Australian history, I think it's fair to say. The United Nations itself is a thing to help smaller countries have a bit more say. Nobody really expects that it will do anything. One of the works of genius is how little it really achieves, but how important it makes everybody feel. So it's not a conspiracy to run the world to a one-world government. We should shoot that one down now. Have you seen how they work? They couldn't organize it. <laughs> does do a, I'll be fair, it does do a lot of good work. It's uh, things like UNESCO, for example, do really good work. But the diplomatic wing of the United Nations, the 193 countries, really are just a way to make people think that they're doing stuff and to give some kind of symbolic okay that, yes, we can all get on when we want to, but really it's not very much. So a, a yes vote probably would have done a lot less damage and probably would have helped Australia's standing with with other countries other than the US and wouldn't have hurt Australia's standing with the US terribly much. It'd be interesting to see what we get out of that. Well, I think there's also that question of what special favours does Australia get by siding with the United States? And there's still that image of Australia as the deputy sheriff from the days of John Howard. But for me, it seems to be one-way traffic. The Prime Minister did meet with Joe Biden about Julian Assange and said enough is enough and it's gone on for far too long. But this is exactly what he said to Joe Biden in November 2022. It's what he said to Biden in December that year, in May 2023, in August and now in October. And obviously enough doesn't seem to be enough. And Julian Assange is still in Belmarsh Prison and Joe Biden has said that there needs to be a separation between politics and the judiciary, so it looks like he's not going to intervene and he's not going to budge on this, but there is no payoff there. What What is the payoff? The US has got all of those bases at Pine Gap. It's got a very favourable deal on AUKUS. Australia sides at every opportunity with the United States and it can't even call on a favour to release a political prisoner who was one of its own citizens and facing extradition to the United States on trumped up charges. So, Surely there's got to be some benefit in being the US Deputy Sheriff and lapdog. Otherwise, what's the point? I can't see it, but there must be a point somewhere. That whole AUKUS thing, which we've discussed up and down the street, was a dud deal. I understand that the current government inherited that deal and there's not very much they can do about it. That, that happens. I just don't understand why they're so keen or seemingly keen on it. It's strange. And you'd think that abstaining from voting to get Julian Assange out would be enough. That seems to me a deal that favours the US a bit more. But clearly, whoever is annoyed with Julian Assange in the States is deeply, deeply annoyed with him. It's pretty clear that he's done nothing morally wrong and not much legally wrong except a bit retrospectively. And six former prime ministers have signed a letter condemning Hamas and in support of Israel as well, and that's John Howard, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison. And there's quite a few different versions about how this letter came about. There were some suggestions that it was pressure from the Zionist Federation of Australia or it actually came from Josh Frydenberg or it actually came from Malcolm Turnbull. And 
For me, it does look like it was written from a pro-Israel position, so we can assume that it was probably written up by the Zionist Federation of Australia. And it outlined that Israel promises to do all it can to avoid civilian casualties. And I really don't think that's the case. There's over 10,000 civilians that have died so far, so I'd really like to see what would happen if they didn't actually make that promise. Paul Keating is the only former Prime Minister who refused to sign that letter, saying that it was too sharp and it was too biased and it needed to be more balanced. And I actually agree, I think that was the case, but it seemed to be part of the Israel government's propaganda process. And since that time, there have been more bombings, more civilians killed in Gaza, and the responses in the Australian media still seem to be biased towards the interests of Israel or the interests of the Israeli government. And if we ever hear from a Palestinian representative, they're always asked if they condemn the actions of Hamas. But there's no such request from Israeli representatives to condemn the actions of the Israeli military or if they support the process of ethnic cleansing in Gaza. And there are also more diplomatic issues starting to arise from all around the world. Egypt has condemned the recent bombings and attacks. South American countries are cutting off their relationships with Israel. But overall, it seems to be quite one-sided and it doesn't seem like there's any room for nuance or reasonable discussion. The Foreign Minister, Senator Penny Wong, she urged Israel to listen to what its friends in the international community are saying, and she was slammed for even suggesting this. And she's also warned that the international community won't accept ongoing civilian deaths in Gaza. She was slammed for that. The Government Minister, Tony Burke, was asked whether he supported the decision of the Canterbury-Bankstown Council to fly the Palestinian flag, and here's what he had to say about that. You need to understand, in my part of Sydney, people are watching every day death. They're watching every day images, sometimes of people they know, often of children. I had a professional woman say to me the other day, she has never seen so many images of dead babies in her life. Often the images they're seeing turn out to be of people they know. Everybody... In, if I go through the suburbs across from, from Belmore, Lakemba, where I live in Punchbowl through to Bankstown, pretty much everybody knows somebody who has lost someone. And until the council made that decision, there was nowhere in Australia where those colours were being acknowledged as worthy of grieving. So when the councillor, Coda Saleh, who's my local council, councillor brought forward that resolution and then the mayor, BLL Hayek, uh, supported that resolution, which I might add was supported unanimously, they were truly representing the grief that is in the community. And once again, it is not the Hamas flag that's flying. It's a Palestinian flag. And it's a flag that gives people the chance to know that there is recognition and not selective grief. We can't say we only grieve for certain people who are slaughtered. We can't have a situation as a nation where we only formally acknowledge particular deaths. What happened on October the 7th was horrific and was rightly condemned by the parliament and condemned by me, the condemnation of Hamas. We can't have the condem that condemnation be added to by saying, as a result of condemnation, that's somehow weakened if you grieve for anybody else. That's somehow weakened if we do something to acknowledge the Palestinian loss of life. 
And that was a very well-considered, well-reasoned and well-articulated perspective. And that's a large group of people within the electorate that he represents in the seat of Watson. And they were slammed as well. And from the usual suspects, Sky News, News Corporation, the Liberal Party and the Israeli lobby as well. But it just seems that there's no room for nuance or reasonable discussion about Palestine and Israel. And I think that that's one of the many problems. There are solutions for every problem in the world, but it's a matter of defining exactly what the problem is and then applying a solution to it. But in this case, it seems like we can't even get to that first point of discussing the issue. Firstly, I think we should praise Tony Burke for representing his community. Watson is one of the largest populations of Islamic community in the country. There's four or five mosques in the seat. There's a lot of cultural organisations and places like Lakemba and Belmore have very prominent Islamic shops and that type of thing. So Tony Burke was doing exactly what his constituents would have wanted him to do. And there may be other members of parliament who may need to support their communities in other ways. I think people who criticise a member of parliament for representing their constituency, they need to have a bit of a think about what this actually means. I think we should praise local members for representing their local communities. Tony Burke represents one of the biggest Muslim communities in Sydney, and I think it would have been wrong for him to not acknowledge that. Whether the council should be entering into international politics is a whole other issue for a whole other time. But nonetheless, I think it's not bad for the council to be showing empathy to its ratepayers and residents. I think it's completely appropriate for Tony Burke to be supporting his constituents in such a strong and positive way. And if it was someone else supporting something I was less inclined to agree with, if they were supporting their local community, we would have to allow that as well. Now, with the Prime Ministers, I think that was a little bit ill-advised. I think Paul Keating was probably right. He gave a few reasons as to why. He said that the letter was a bit biased. It was a bit harsh. He also mentioned that he wasn't particularly a fan of Scott Morrison, John Howard or Tony Abbott. But nonetheless, he decided to abstain from that. I think, again, he's probably going to be seen to be right. As world outrage grows against what's happening in Gaza in particular, the other prime ministers may have overstepped their mark. I don't think that ex-prime ministers should enter into public debates unasked. And I think this is a case where some of them, if not all of them, are going to regret having such a strongly worded letter. And it goes back to there are some very powerful lobby groups on the Israeli side who perhaps wield a bit too much influence from time to time. It was surprising that Kevin Rudd, who's normally more of an empathetic person, would go as hard as that letter did. But again, uh, we don't know what's going on in the background and what else is happening. Ultimately, I don't think it's going to do very much good, to be quite honest, because their ex-Prime Ministers for a reason, I think. None of them left at the top of their career. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. 
or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. We set in the sail to the place on the map from which no one has ever returned. Drawn by the promise of the Joker and the Fool, but the lights are the crosses that burn. Drawn by the promise of the women and the lace, and the gold and the cotton and pearls. It's the place where to keep all the darkness you need. Still away from the light of the world on this trip, baby. Save me, save me from tomorrow. I don't want to sail with this ship of fools. No, no. There have been more concerns about the performances of the Australian mainstream media and what they perceive to be balanced and unbiased reporting. And Rather than trying to change or do something about it, the blind spot continues. The slanting towards conservative interests continues and the slow descent of legacy media into irrelevance continues as well. And there's no indication that this slide will stop at any time soon. And we reported several weeks ago that the ABC decided that their idea of balance is to provide equal time to both sides of a debate, equal time to the government and to the opposition, which also means equal time to an expert an equal time to a non-expert. And the biggest problem of the media is its total inability to reflect upon its own behaviours, scratch its head about why it's becoming less relevant and behaving like it's a closed shop. And during the week, the ABC journalist Lee Sales presented the Andrew Ollie Memorial Lecture, and that's an annual lecture on the role and the future of the media. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Lee Sales because she's just one journalist from an entire industry, and I think that the problem is far bigger than just the one journalist, but she did provide the lecture, so we do have to critique it. But for me, the lecture just signified all the problems of the media. It was a 35-minute lecture, but the first 10 minutes were spent providing an anecdote about incorrectly parking in Ita Buttrose's car park space at the ABC, and then a hagiography of Ita Buttrose. So it's all very matey and incestuous. And then the car park story again before launching into what matters in journalism. Now, back to her car park. I've been sitting on that anecdote for three years, waiting for the perfect moment to tell it publicly because I knew it was a great story. Journalists are often accused of bias, and actually, I agree. Real journalists all do share a bias towards the cracking story. You don't care which side of politics or which social media zealots you'll offend or whether it'll be long and difficult. You tolerate your friends and your partner thinking you're mad. You push on through three hours sleep a night because once you're hooked, you can't help yourself. It's the Seven Network's Chris Reason at the Thai Cave Rescue in 2018. The kids are out, but Rezo figures maybe the soldiers at the roadblocks have gone home. It could be a chance to finally get pictures inside the cave. Everyone's knackered, his cameraman wants to kill him, but back into the car they hop, and sure enough, a scoop. Chris Reason, hopelessly biased towards a great story. It's the ABC's Annabelle Crabb interviewing the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, on Kitchen Cabinet, having the courage to ask him to his face if his remarks about about letting Lebanese Muslims into Australia were racist, even though she knew that merely inviting him onto her program would trigger an abusive social media pylon for weeks, ironically, from partisans certain she'd give him a free kick. Yep, she's biased too. 
That bias towards a great story is the same whether we file for TikTok or Four Corners, work at Nine News or Mamma Mia, whether we have three minutes of audio or 70,000 words. But right now, sadly, the reality is the public is losing interest in the stories we're telling. And that idea of the cracking story, that's essentially infotainment. And sure, stories can be presented in so many different ways. And that's what the media needs to do with all the different media that's available out there. But I just find that the mainstream media is too introspective, not being able to look at the outside world. And sure, there were some relevant points that were made during the lecture. But that idea of the bias towards the cracking story, well, we don't want the cracking story, the scoop and the competition between different journalists. We just want to get to the heart of what a public interest story is. We want to hear from different voices, different expert opinions, and the ones that we don't hear from that often. And if we're always biased towards the cracking story rather than the public interest story, well, those are the voices that get left behind and the ones that we don't hear from very often. People aren't watching the news. We Newspapers are essentially dead, being used more as bludgeons to hit the government with and support the uh, opposition rather than provide information and news to people. We have to worry about this because we don't seem to have it yet, but a sharp government knowing that the media is dying will work around the media and not give us information. They may come to smaller media outlets, but I doubt it. The gap will be filled, by the way. I think there is a a need, even if people don't acknowledge it. I think there is a need felt within the Australian populace that we need a good, strong media. But at the moment, we don't have it. If we look at the quality of journalism from Al Jazeera, from Le Monde, from the New York Times, from parts of the English Guardian, from the New Zealand Auckland Tribune, They do really very, very good work. Al Jazeera has been the clearest on what is going on in the Middle East, partly because they're based there and probably have a bit better of a grasp for what's going on. But partly they're not pushing any one agenda. They're just trying to tell the news, as far as I can tell. There may be a subtle agenda being pushed in there. On people are switching off because they're not getting the news that they're really after. It's gone down this path of infotainment where it's not really a matter of informing the public, but it's trying to entertain the public or engage them through amusement value. And I realise that no one's going to watch the news if it's a dull, monotone newsreader, but it's not the presentation, it's the quality of the news. And that link between the news and commercial invested interests that's the problem. And people don't want to hear a cracking story. It's a news report that they're after. And there's more people in Australia searching for other news outlets as well. They're seeking it from CNN or BBC, or they're seeking it from Al Jazeera, especially with the coverage on Palestine, independent sources. And the main reason is that they can. All of this material is available through the internet, but if you are interested in the news, and there's all this good quality material available from all over the world, once you start watching it, you're not going to go back to the ABC or to Channel 9 or to Channel 7. The news there is quite limited and from limited perspectives as well. And if legacy media wants to get those audiences back, well, maybe they should start providing good quality news instead of those cracking yarns that they keep going on about. Yeah, the cracking yarns. Tall tales are an important part of the Australian uh, cultural landscape, but they shouldn't be part of news. Tall tales should be preserved, should be shared, should be should be told, but not as a part of a serious news bulletin. I'm just old enough to remember when the 7 o'clock ABC News was the gold standard for television news and everybody would watch the news at 7 o'clock to get 
exactly what what's happened. Now it's a mix of lifestyle, entertainment, sport, and oh yeah, the government did something, and so we've got in two people: the government spokesman and the opposition spokesman. The opposition spokesman is a total yahoo, but hey, it's balance. And I guess they didn't learn their lesson from when they had Brian Cox on Q and A. And for balance, they brought in Malcolm Roberts, who made a complete fool of himself. But the ABC made a complete fool of itself. Oh well, I think that is the big issue. That's that issue of balance. That's the one that we highlight on new policies quite often, and especially at the ABC, which seems to have replaced that idea of quality with balance. They've got this strange idea of giving equal time to the government and to the opposition, and I don't even know where this idea came from. And during election campaigns, this was when the media felt like both sides are on equal footing, equal time and equal coverage, because essentially there's, that's not a governing period, and both sides of politics are trying to form government. But somehow this process has changed to giving all sides equal times and at all times, not just during election campaigns, but every single moment of the day. And it seems that this is a new rule that was introduced in May 2022 after Labor won government, and Angus Taylor is given equal time or more time than Jim Chalmers, and Peter Dutton is given more time than the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Susan Lay gets a lot more air time than Richard Miles, who is the Deputy Prime Minister, but they're not in equal positions. And Labor is the government. The Liberal and National Parties are in opposition. And the roles and responsibilities are radically different. And I tend to watch a lot of international news coverage, David, and I can tell you who all the leaders are in those different countries. And I'm not trying to show off here, but the prime ministers or the presidents, and that's in Germany, Bulgaria, Croatia, Macedonia, Serbia. But I wouldn't know who the opposition leaders are because you barely see them. They appear once in a while to rebut key points or comment on a crisis. But the focus in a lot of international news reporting is on the government. They're the ones that make the decisions. They're the ones that have got all the responsibilities. During election time over there, it's quite different. That's when they get the equal footing. But otherwise, it's all about the government of the day. And that's the way that it should be. But in Australia, it's quite different. The opposition tends to get more coverage than the government. And that's another issue for why audiences are dropping off. Q&A audiences have dropped off significantly. And so has the ABC Insiders. And so has ABC 730. And as it has on commercial networks. But audiences, I believe, have just had enough of the conflict-based reporting. They're sick of hearing from the opposition all the time. They've just had enough of the one-sided conservative support by the mainstream media. And they're just going elsewhere for their news and political information. And the news audiences have been dropping off in legacy media for some time, but legacy media just hasn't got the ability to realise exactly what the problem is. And I just think that the downward spiral is just going to keep going down further and further as time goes by. It's definitely problematic. Again, the current generation of journalists, I think almost everyone are supposed to be university educated. University education should talk about the idea of what good research is, that balance isn't saying, well, according to this historical evidence, this happened, but I better be balanced and better say, oh, it didn't happen. The documents must be wrong for some reason. You need evidence. The best Q&A shows are when they get in a panel of experts, maybe with slightly different perspectives, maybe with different approaches, maybe they've got different specialities related to the same thing and you get a really good discussion and you learn stuff. 
the worst ones are when they bring in, and I've said this before, people with no expertise in the subject and get them to speak. Sometimes they bring in songwriters or actors or comedians or what have you. But unless they're talking about the arts industry, say, and sometimes not even then, but to, to bring in somebody with no expertise or even qualification in a, a big topic, talking on tax return, and now we've got morning hosts Slacko and Jacko to tell us what how they think that tax should be reformed. It just doesn't work. It's a silly and uh, immature way of doing things. I don't know if changing the board in the ABC will be enough. I think that's a good start, but I think we need to start promoting journalists who are doing a great job. I think we need to find those journalists who do do very good work and even excellent work and listen to them and not watch the others because I think that's the only way they're going to be listening. Now, again, I'm told that ratings for Q&A are very low at the moment. Uh, It's also a show that is very problematic since Tony Jones left. It's had four hosts in the last three years or something. And I know that there's been Stan Grant, for example, I'm not going to criticize why he left. I, I can't speak to that. And it seemed to me to be very valid and, and very reasonable. And it, it was a shame in a way, because if he was to go, it shouldn't have been for the reason he did. And I think that says a lot about the culture at the ABC. Well, I, I don't think it's just the ABC. It's the, it's the entire mainstream media, the legacy media. And that idea of promoting balance over equality, I think that leads to a decay in public discourse and a decay in politics. And that cracking story or the idea of the cracking yarn, that produced Donald Trump in the United States. It produced mm. Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom. It produced someone like Scott Morrison in Australia. Crack po- populist politicians who play the media and the media always seems to go along with it as well. Why you would think that this is good journalism, I don't know. You lose your engaged listeners and I guess this is why there's a faction of people who really want to have less government scrutiny for all kinds of reasons you can get through tax cuts you can change occupational health and safety laws you can uh, balance law and order in favor of the rich and away from the poor you can change the voting system in ways that favor wealthier or different parties A strong media frightens politicians, but a strong media should frighten people. And you should be frightened of the media. And in Australia, not enough people are. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can contribute and support new politics on Substack and Patreon.
And there is some speculation growing that the next election will result in a minority government. And this follows on from a comment put out by the former independent member for New England, Tony Windsor, suggesting that because of the quality of independence coming through and the government and opposition being bogged down in incremental fear, as he puts it, there's a good chance that there'll be a minority government after the next federal election. And there's a few issues to consider here. The next federal election isn't due until May 2025, and that's 18 months away. And Anything can happen between now and then. There could be events that are highly favourable to the government or there could be events that are an absolute disaster for the government. And first-term governments have been returned for a second term, going back all the way to 1931. But first-term governments usually have a dent in their vote at their first attempt at re-election. Whitlam, Hawke, Howard, Rudd-Gillard, Abbott Turnbull. The Albanese government has got a slim majority of five seats, but there is a large crossbench of 17 at the moment, and it will be difficult to see the Liberal National Coalition being able to win government at the next election, but a minority government is a strong possibility, purely based on the figures and on historical results. I don't think the Liberal National Party will gain any seats. National Party will keep its standard 13, 14 seats, whatever it is. The Liberal Party have lost too much of their core vote too badly to get it back. Seats like Wentworth are gone forever. Seats like Kuyong is gone forever. North Sydney. These are seats that the Liberal Party should have almost not needed to campaign in at. They were that hard. But they got in excellent local members who are independents. I've said before, I don't agree with everything they stand for. But Good work is good work. They look after their communities. They make sure that their communities are being represented in the way that these communities deserve to be represented in. If that movement starts to move against Labor, it'll be interesting to see what happens. There are some very, very good Labor candidates as there were some very, very good Liberal candidates. Not in those seats necessarily, but there are Liberal backbenchers who really represent the interests of their community. The safe Labor seats, because of the pressure on people, tend to be taken a bit less for granted by their representatives. But a strong Teal movement could see a movement away from Labor people. Now, as for a minority government, I think Australia needs a period of minority government for the parties to really look at themselves. Last time we had it, Labor improved a bit. Liberal Party just went more and more insane. They learnt nothing from it, partly because they got government next time, partly because the Labor Party self-destructed again and again and again and again. And we could spend the next 25 minutes talking about why that was. We won't, but I don't think the Liberal National Party will gain any seats at the next election. I think they'll probably maintain... They can forget about the 17 seats or whatever it is they need. Uh, that's not going to happen next time, particularly with the current leadership. Oh, well, I think there's quite a few issues to take into account. There's demographic change within the electorate. There's younger voters who are not so tribal when it comes to their voting patterns, but it seems that they are staying away from conservative parties, most definitely staying away from the Liberal Party. And that's not a comment. That's just a statement of fact. And if we're not seeing enough political change in a Labor government, well, these voters will start looking elsewhere on the centre-left spectrum. And it's not that they're any more politically sophisticated or radical than older parts of the electorate, but they're just looking at the issues that relate to climate change, the environment, housing affordability issues. And they might start feeling that Labor's not doing enough on these issues, or it's just being too cautious, or it might look at its policies about what's happening in Gaza and think, nah, 
that's not for me. And then they might start looking at the Australian Greens or other independents who are offering something different. And I think for a wide range of reasons, the Liberal Party, as you mentioned, David, it will find it very difficult to win the next election. They have to reach over that crossbench of 16 or 17 seats and try and pick up about 12 seats off the Labor Party. And I just can't see that happening. And Many of the first-time Teal independents, there is this thing called the sophomore effect where a first-term member of parliament spends the three years consolidating their seat and usually increase their vote at their second election. It doesn't happen all the time, but it usually does. It's happened to Zali Stegall. She increased her vote at the second election that she attempted, and so far the first-term Teal independents have performed pretty well and doesn't look like there's many reasons to throw any of them out at this stage. We have had precedents of non-government members being made ministers, and that may be the case. But at the moment, the independents are all mostly focused on not working their careers to become ministers and above. They're working on their electorates and making sure their electorates are getting the best representation they can give them. This is a big problem for the Liberal Party, of course. They've probably lost seats like, as I mentioned before, Wentworth, Kuyong, North Sydney, Warringah, They've probably gone for at least a generation. And in fact, the next time a a party wins those seats, it may not be the Liberal Party and certainly not the Liberal Party as we know it today. I don't think that Zali Stegall's going anywhere. I don't think Kylie Tink's going anywhere. I don't think Allegra Spender's going anywhere. I don't think Monique Ryan's going anywhere. Of course, in an election, anything can happen. And again, let me iterate, I don't agree with everything these people say. I can recognise the difference between a good local member and an entitled, spoiled, do-no-work local member. And they're on all sides of politics, of course. I don't think it's a case where the Labor government and all of their advisers wouldn't be aware of all of these issues with the crossbench and dropping support for the two major parties and those sort of issues. They'd know that historically a first-term government always loses some votes and some seats at their second election. And first-term governments lost seats and votes in 1974, the Labor government and the LNP, but not between the Labor government and the rest of Parliament. So they'll be looking for some big issues to focus on in 2024, which effectively is a final year before the next election. And if they start to lag or have some after effects of the defeat of the Voice to Parliament referendum in 2024, I'd say that the Stage 3 tax cuts are probably the big issue that they will campaign on, even though it's already been legislated. And I just fear that they'll introduce the Stage 3 tax cuts in full because to make any changes will require legislative change and they will end up bringing on a massive political fight. And from what we've seen over the past 18 months, this Labor government hasn't got the courage to take this on and they might not have the political capital to take this on either. And there will be a lot of centre-left economists who will argue strongly against the Stage 3 tax cuts and there will be many people within the electorate as well. But very few people vote against tax cuts. And I don't think there will be too many people protesting on the streets about it. And that's not to say that I agree with the stage three tax cuts. I, I don't. But just looking at it politically, you can see how this is likely to play out next year. Yeah, they were handed this. And instead of saying, yes, we are at least reforming it so that it's a bit more just, or even saying we're scrapping it because we can't afford it, because we were handed AUKUS, which we can't afford. 
because that's cutting into healthcare, education, all the things that Australians expect and like from their government. Playing it cautious, I get it. Whitlam didn't play it cautious and only lasted two elections. Hawke did neither and lasted three. Keating copped it, but he won the one election and then he didn't win the next one. That was after years and years and years of a Labor government, so he had an uphill battle to win the second election anyway. Rudd started being brave and audacious and then folded. Gillard was always outmaneuvered by her own side. So I think you should treat government as we have one term to do as much as we possibly can, knowing that the media will go against you, but as we've discussed earlier, it doesn't matter if the media is against you, it's now an irrelevancy really, and that if you actually do things well, you will get re-elected rather than bumbling around hoping that you'll get re-elected next time. What's to stop you bumbling around hoping for a third term? At some point, you've got to start doing the work and you've got to start at least acknowledging your ideals, even if you can't always bring them in for many, many reasons. You should be acknowledging them. I think generally, if it does end up being a minority government after the next federal election, I believe that minority governments are actually better than majority governments. But that, of course, depends on who's sitting on the crossbench and who holds the balance of power. But they can force governments to make necessary but unpalatable decisions. And if that doesn't work out, well, the government can always blame the crossbench, bearing in mind that they can't complain too much because they do depend on these people to remain in government. But I think we do end up having better legislation, better policy and better outcomes under a minority government. And I think that one of the best periods of government in New South Wales was between 1991 and 1995, and I realise that was a long time ago, but that was when we had a minority government that forced a lot of much-needed reform. And the Gillard government between 2010 and 2013 was one of the most productive governments ever, and I think that that was primarily because of it being a minority government. And The Gillard government at that stage was the first minority government since 1940, and we've only had two minority governments in the past 82 years. But mathematically, with a larger crossbench, minority governments could become a permanent feature of federal politics. And again, it does depend on what the makeup of the crossbench is, but I think that would be a good thing for federal politics. I think it would. I think the Gillard government was extremely effective in many ways. Not so much at the party level, but I think Julia Gillard was handed a mess that nobody could have managed. And she did her best, uh, despite some frankly awful advice she was given, and a, a difficult party to manage at that point. Having said that, I think it had the most legislation of any government, and not just per capita, but I think the most. With a crossbench who she was able to uh, negotiate good deals with. Gillard came in with a very strong reputation as a negotiator and showed that, yes, she was a great negotiator. I think a, a minority government is a good thing. And people point to countries like Italy, where it's what they had 48 governments in 53 years or something as allegiances kept changing. But Italy still exists as a country. It's it's a fairly strong economy. Things get done. It's, people are relatively happy with how the government works. Just because the status quo don't want it doesn't mean that it's not something that's worth having, even if it's, again, for another term or two, just to sort the major parties out. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. 
We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.